dreams and visions. Kim told me he saw a paper back there where Josh had it, notes on Pastor Tom's dreams and visions or something like that. I, I, I'm not talking about my dreams or visions this morning, so you can be relieved. Uh, if you did hear my last message, I didn't hear it. I would encourage you to do so as part of this series on discerning the will of God. The sermon that I preached was on remas and open doors as we continue to look at popular methods of discerning God's will. What is popular is not always what is doctrinally sound. What is doctrinally sound is not always popular. So my position is probably not a popular one. And my position is this. God doesn't speak to people today in an audible voice or a still small voice or inner promptings or signs like putting the fleece out like Gideon did or open doors and circumstances or dreams and visions. Here is the citation that I want to share with you. I just read this recently, but it was given actually in 2004. Now, there is a reason why I missed it. But tell me if you don't think that this this sounds like what evangelicals are saying today, all right? Amid the many noises and messengers in the world today, we must learn to recognize the whisperings of the Holy Spirit. Following are some of the principal ways the Holy Ghost communicates with us. He speaks to the mind and heart in a still small voice. Sometimes the Holy Ghost will help you understand a gospel truth or give you a prompting that seems to occupy your mind and press it as, itself upon your feelings. Doctrine and Covenants 128.1 Although such revelation can have a powerful effect on us, it always comes quietly as a still small voice. His, he prompts us through our feelings. Although we often describe communication from the Spirit as a voice, that voice is one that we feel more than hear. And while we speak of list, listening to the whisperings of the Holy Spirit, we often describe the spiritual prompting by saying, I had a feeling. Note the final words in Doctrine and Covenants 9.8. Therefore you shall feel that it is right. The burning described in the scripture passage signifies a feeling of comfort and serenity. Does that sound like evangelical teaching today? Inner feelings prompting still small voice. That comes from True to Faith, Revelation, Latter-day Saints Church publication, 2004. But the citations that they gave about all these feelings and promptings were written in 1835. It's nothing new under the sun. In discussing the matter of open doors and circumstances last week, I noted that people in the Bible who have made thousands of significant decisions, life-altering decisions, history-making decisions, never once looked for an open door as evidence of God directing your path. You won't find it in the scripture. Today, however, many people do, believing that God has removed obstacles and open doors, or they look for unusual circumstances, which just couldn't be accidental. That's the popular thinking. Maybe this is even confirmed by Bible verses that are coming to your attention, as I said, jumping off the page at you over and over again. 
have you experienced that and taken it as a sign that God is speaking to you? Maybe something you see in the newspaper or a road sign or a license plate reoccurs or a friend mentions it. And this provides further evidence to you that you are receiving divine guidance. How do we explain that? One natural explanation is this, the Bader-Meinhof effect, or what is also known as frequency illusion. Probably have never heard of it. This refers to the way the brain processes and stores information. Something recently encountered which captures our attention seems to appear, seems to appear with improbable frequency. I'm going to give you an example that I read of this. Let's let's pretend you have $40,000 to spare. If you do, see me afterwards. And you're out shopping for a new car. You never really cared about cars that much before, minus perhaps a cerebral hatred for the car commercials you see every seven seconds during sporting events, televised. But now you're invested. Now you're looking for a car. And when someone mentions a certain kind of car, one you've never heard of before, and maybe gets high ratings on a consumer review site, you're interested. Suddenly, the car is everywhere. It's parked in front of your house. Your boss's front husband has one. You see two of them next to you in the traffic on your way home from work. The car is even popping up in those commercials that you hate during a baseball game, and you swear up and down, they came out of nowhere. Welcome to the Bader-Meinhof effect. It's the way the brain works. And a couple of things happen when the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon kicks in. Your brain seems to be excited by the fact that you've learned something new and selective attention occurs. Your brain subconsciously thinks, hey, that's awesome. I'm going to look for that thing without actually thinking about it. So now what you're looking for, you find. To make it all the more powerful, confirmation bias occurs after seeing it even just twice. In other words, you start agreeing with yourself that, yep, you're definitely seeing it more. Now, if you're seeking guidance from the Lord, surely this is it. It's not. It's how the brain works. So don't mistake what could be and probably is a natural event for something supernatural. It's like deja vu. You ever hear deja vu? That's French for already seen. So you encounter a certain situation and you think, wow, this is eerily familiar. A sight, a sound, or whatever it is. People who believe in reincarnation point to that as evidence of past life. It's not. It's a brain glitch. And, it, and it, if it happens frequently, you could be headed for vascular dementia. Seriously. Or signs of schizophrenia. It's a brain glitch. It's nothing supernatural. But people want to grasp onto something and make it supernatural. But you think this is supernatural. Something happened in your life which kept your attention, and now you're more aware of illusions or reference to it. There is nothing supernatural about it. So now, now I know what you might be thinking, right? Maybe not everybody. Pastor Tom, there you go again, denying the supernatural. But I do not deny the supernatural. The supernatural works of God. 
beginning in the first verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's supernatural. But I want to remind you that the supernatural is supernatural because of its rarity, not its frequency. You, you, you grasp that, right? We call it supernatural because it's rare. It's extraordinary, out of the ordinary. It doesn't happen frequently. A miracle, by definition, is an exception. It's not the norm. If it's the norm, it's no longer miraculous, as we see the miracles of the Bible. Miracles in the Bible are a special demonstration of the power of God to accomplish his will. And the great miracle ages of the Bible, and they're not as many as you think they are. You think there are miracles on every page of the Bible, and there aren't. The great miracle epics of the Bible were under Moses, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, and during the lives of the apostles. And interestingly, the epistles of Paul wrote either during or after his first Roman imprisonment make little reference or no reference to miracles at all as being experienced in the church. Those written before his Roman imprisonments describe a church in which miracles and miracle workers were present and, and common everywhere. Something changed. Something changed. So let's talk for a minute about dreams and visions in the Bible. First thing I, I should tell you is that dreams and visions are not unique to Israel in the Old Testament or to, to Christians. The pagan religions of the Old Testament, they believed, the followers believed that God's communicated to men in dreams and visions and every pagan religion in the world today does so as well. Do dreams differ from visions? Dreams occur in the night, while visions could be in the day or in the night, but the Bible makes very little distinction between dreams and visions. Paul's vision of the, the Macedonian man, remember, asking him to come over and help him? Acts 16.6, 6, it reads like this. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the regions of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. The Spirit of God was very active in getting out the gospel to the furthest parts of the world. And after they had come to Mysia, they tried to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mythia, they came to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, Come over here and help us. So this was definitely a very clear divine dream or vision, whatever you want to call it. On several occasions in the Bible, the biblical authors put these two terms together. Daniel 7, 1, in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his night. Two different Hebrew words, but basically the same idea as he was lying in bed. And he wrote down the substance of his dream. Some Christians, authors, speakers, tell people to, to keep a dream journal to help you figure them out, your dreams out. I think that's about as useful as Gothard's Rima journal. Daniel uses the word vision 19 times. It's the Hebrew word hezav, which also means appearance. So vision is an appearance. 
he uses the word, different word, dream, 18 times. And the word dream occurs in the book of Genesis 23 times. The most appearance of dreams occur in the book of Genesis. Numbers 12, 6, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream, used synonymously. Joel 2.28, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. So dreams and visions, Joel says, are going to come, not to everybody, to the ordinary Israelites at some point in the future. We'll look at that context. God's first communication with Abram, who was then Abram, was in a, in a vision. And you're probably familiar with that. He gave him what we call the uh, Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And this reoccurs later in Genesis 15. God confirmed the uh, God confirmed that same covenant to Joseph or to Jacob through a dream in Genesis chapter 28. And all throughout the scripture, you'll find in the Old Testament that God conveyed his will to the patriarchs and the prophets in a dream or in visions. And probably one that you're you're all familiar with is Jacob's ladder. It's an interesting story, isn't it? In Genesis 28, beginning in verse 10. It says, Jacob went from Beersheba and he went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there all night because the sun had set. He took one of the stones of that place and put it at his head. I, I can't figure that one out. And he lay down in that place to sleep. Then he dreamed. And behold, a ladder was set up upon the earth and the top reached heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood upon it above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your descendants. Also, your descendants shall be as the dust of the earth. Again, from Genesis chapter 12. You will spread to the west and to the east, to the north and the south. And in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. What he told Abraham, the promise of a Messiah would come through through their loins. Behold, I'm with you and I will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. We're seeing the fulfillment of that for some time now in our, our own day. I will not leave you until I have done what I've spoken to you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. And he was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God and the gate of heaven. So he arose early in the morning and he took the stone that he had put under his head and he set up a pillar with it and he poured oil on top of it and he called the name of that place Bethel, right? House of God. So both Genesis 15 and Genesis 28 affirm that God gave Israel the land as an inheritance and that they would have a great number of descendants. And we call Israel the promised land. For good reason, it's the place that Yahweh has promised to them. Another interesting episode regarding a dream is found in the, the complaint of Miriam and Aaron in Numbers chapter 12. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he had married an Ethiopian woman. 
So they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? Bad idea, right? Bad idea to make a complaint like that. So what does God do in Numbers 12 beginning? In the second verse, and the Lord heard it. And you know, when I when I heard those words, when I read those words, I, I, it really makes me stop and think. God hears, right? God hears our complaints. God hears our criticisms. And the Lord heard it. And here's what, here's what the scripture says. Now, the man Moses was very humble, more than all the men who were on the face of the earth. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses, Aaron, and Miriam, come out here. You three, to the tabernacle of meeting. So they, they came out, I'm pretty sure, in fear and trembling. And the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both went forward. And then he said, hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. I speak with him face to face. So the anger of the Lord was aroused against him, and he departed. And when the cloud departed from above the tabernacle, suddenly Miriam became leprous, as white as snow. And that was the judgment of the Lord, which would last for a time. But God singled out Moses from among all the prophets who received dreams or visions. And Moses, by far, by far, it's not even close, received more special revelation than anyone in the Bible. And I think that should give pause to Christians who say God speaks to them regularly, whether by voice, by dreams, by visions, by remas, or any other method. It's hard to top Moses. God singled him out. Somebody said Moses parted the Red Sea. Most men can't even part their hair the right way. I don't have to worry about that. 1 Samuel 3.1. Now the boy Samuel ministered to the Lord before Eli. And the word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no widespread revelation. ESV says there was no frequent vision, which can also mean dream. Now we can't claim that today if you believe certain Bible teachers. There is daily widespread revelation and miracles. It's all over the place. Dreams in the Bible are distinguished from ordinary daily dreams that people have. I don't know how many of you have dreams, but I dreams and they never make any sense. But everybody dreams. Even if you think you don't dream, you are dreaming. You just can't remember your dreams. Most people dream about two hours per night. Some of you do it while you're in church, which is not a good idea. A dream is a scenic sensory experience involving images and sounds and occasionally smells or tastes. While many theories have been proposed, no single consensus has emerged on why we dream. 
Some research has indicated that periods of dreaming could be the brain's way of straightening up, of clearing out partial, erroneous, or unnecessary information. So apparently there's a function to it, right? This is what we do, but nobody really knows why we do it. We do know this, though, that God used dreams and visions to relay very special revelation. And I pointed you to, out to you at the series, at the beginning of the series, when God spoke to the prophets, when he spoke to Elijah, and the still small voice, all of these episodes, the, the dramatic signs that God gave Gideon because his faith was weak at the time, all of them were in light of a redemptive purpose that God was going to accomplish. Every single one had a redemptive purpose behind it. No ordinary Israelite was receiving dreams or visions or signs telling him what he should do. You know, buy this, do that. Not, there's, that's, there's not in the Bible. It's just not in the Bible at all. So the, the rarity stood out there in, in, in Samuel's time. God used dreams and visions to relay special information. The word dream, the Hebrew is halom, retains the customary meaning of what occurs in a sleep state, a normal sleep state. And it, it's really occurs frequently in the Old Testament. Joseph was called the what? The dreamer in Genesis 7, 37, 19. But actually, Jacob had more dreams than he did. Joseph, the husband of Mary in the New Testament, had four dreams of special revelation. And dreams in the New Testament are quite infrequent. But we do know this, that dreams in the Bible provided clear guidance or it was necessary for them to be interpreted. I'll give you an example of clear guidance. Genesis 21. Abraham journeyed from, from there to the south and he dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and stayed in Gerar. Now Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Bad idea, right? God came to Abimelech, a pagan, in a dream by night, and said to him, Indeed, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. That is as clear as it gets. He had a dream. No one needed to interpret it for him. God says, You've taken another man's wife. You're a dead man. Matthew 2.12, then being divinely warned in a dream that they, the Magi, should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Very clear, clear direction. Verse 13, now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, flee to Europe, to Egypt, and stay there until I bring you word, for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. Clear guidance, clear guidance. But often there was a need for interpretation of dreams in the Old Testament. Ten dreams in the Old Testament contained symbolism, which required interpretation. Joseph told the butler and the baker that only God could interpret dreams. Genesis 48. They said to him, we each have had a dream and, and there is no one to interpret it. So Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? To them, tell them to me, please. It's their dreams. Genesis 41, 15. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. 
but I have heard it said of you that you can understand a dream to interpret it. So Joseph answered Pharaoh saying, it is not in me. God will give in Pharaoh an answer of peace. He will interpret the dream. Daniel had a lot of dreams and visions. And the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar, who was a pagan, was, was not left up to Daniel's abilities. It says in Daniel 2.27, Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king, but there is a God in heaven who reveals secrets. Daniel 1.7, as for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. It came from the Lord. So it would seem that God didn't leave it up to the recipients of dreams to supply their own interpretation. And because dreams today, in your life and my life, most of them don't make any sense, right? They would be notoriously difficult to interpret. So those people who believe in dream communication as special revelation, try to find out what your dreams are, are, are saying, they, they write, and I've seen this all throughout their literature, that because they're difficult to interpret, they, they may require additional confirmation by other means, other signs. Just like I said last week, one sign is never enough, right? It's never enough. But if, but if you get the right kind of help, you might be able to figure it out. Might be able to figure it out. Jack Deere is a very popular charismatic teacher. He teaches a lot on the possible meaning of symbols and dreams, signs, wonders, all of these things. This is his dream vocabulary. A baby can appear as a symbol of some ministry the Lord has for you. So if you dream about dreaming about a baby, it might be a ministry the Lord has for you. Running water, the power of the Holy Spirit. Cars, a particular ministry. I guess if it's Toyota, you might be going to Japan. I don't know. Trains. I always thought trains were trains. But in his dream vocabulary, they could mean movements or denominations. Take your pick. The faceless man. If you have a dream about a faceless man, that's the Holy Spirit. If you have a dream about a man in white, that's Jesus. Carrie Stone, another best-selling author of books that I don't recommend. He, won, he wrote this in one book. He published the book, How to Interpret Dreams and Visions. You've probably seen this guy if you watch any kind of TV. He does programs from Israel and everything. And, and he's... he's uh, you know, pretty captivating speaker. He is a false prophet of the new apostolic reformation, which is a false, false movement attributed to the power of the Holy Spirit with modern day apostles and so forth. Here's what he says in his book. Have a dream about it. About it. You have a dream last night. You dreamt about flowers. Ever have flowers in your dream? That's a new beginning. Precious metals. Dream about precious metals. Maybe you saw a commercial about precious metals. That means a great blessing is coming. 
most likely financial. A desert trial or temptation is coming in your life. Isolation, or you're going to have to stand alone in the, your faith. An earthquake, a sudden and unexpected shaking will occur in your life. A mountain, this is not hard to figure out, difficulties that must be removed. A valley, some form of anguish or struggle. Smoke, where there's smoke, there's fire. So there's going to be a situation that occurs stress and confusion in your life. Fire is a purging of someone or something. He says that dreaming of a limping injury means that something is going to affect your spiritual walk. Dreaming of being barefoot can represent not being prepared for a situation. People actually buy this. They actually believe this. Is it found anywhere in the Bible? No, it's all made up. Every bit of it is made up. For some, some reason, the New Testament authors have failed to give Christians the information they need to interpret their dreams from God. The New Testament is absolutely silent on this. I couldn't even find any articles on dreams in the Bible dictionaries that I have. I know Unger has a short, short article on it in his Bible dictionary. I couldn't find any in all of the systematic theologies I have. In other words, many of the great thinkers, who Christian writers and theologians who composed the systematic theologies that many people go to, they don't mention any of this. It didn't occupy their attention at all. And interestingly, Jesus never mentioned dreams. Never, he never said he was going to come again in dreams. He says, when I do come again, Revelation 1-7, every eye will see me. Every eye will see me. So we need to be careful with that. There is no symbology in the New Testament dreams and therefore no need for an interpreter. The examples of dreams recorded in the New Testament are clear and direct. I don't know how many total, not many. I think there's six given in the Gospels, in the Gospel of Matthew. All of them to Joseph, but one. And this is interesting. Pilate's wife. Pilate's wife is the only female dreamer mentioned in the Bible. The only one. But we have plenty of them today. Matthew 27, 19. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate, his wife sent to him saying, have nothing to do with that just man. Should have taken her advice. For I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. Joyce Meyer, popular theologian of our day, right? She says, God has amazing plans for our life. He gives us goals. He gives us dreams. When God gives you a dream, it's like becoming pregnant. You conceive, think, or imagine a vision or idea of the new thing he's showing you, the thing he's planned for you. Then after conception, you go through a season of pregnancy, a time of growth, and preparation for your dream to become a reality. I'll venture to say that you didn't know such things were in the Bible, because they're not. It's a false teaching from a false teacher. Author Barbie Breathitt, described as a respected teacher of the supernatural manifestations of God. Now, that'll catch your attention. 
the supernatural manifestations of God. She authors a book called Dream Encounters in which she claims Christians can act, have access to a secret dream language that God uses to reveal hidden knowledge. Anytime top people talk like that, it's occultic. It's a sign of a cult to believers. Her 30 years, she says, of studying and experiencing in biblically-based spirit-led dream interpretation. How on earth could that be biblically based? There's not a word about it in the Bible. And yet she, pro she provides it to people. Her website provides a free online dream journal, dream evaluations, dream mapping, prophetic interpretations, comprehensive dream certification training. That's what you need. I don't know where it'll get in your life. Barbie has developed dream interpretation tools that include, listen to this, thousands thousands of definitions organized into easy-to-use laminated cards. That's what I need. Thousands of definitions organized into, easy, into laminated cards for my use. From colors to buildings to animals to numbers, dream cards help people who are seeking revelation to quickly decipher the symbolic meaning in dreams and visions. And people buy this stuff. People believe this stuff. Do you know Jude? Jude? Jude warned about false teachers. Certain men, he says. Certain men will creep in unawares. We can't say that anymore. They're everywhere. They're all over the internet. They're as public as you can get. And they're peddling their wares, false teachings. And Jude 1.8 warned, likewise also these dreamers, dreamers, false visionaries, defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. There was a problem with people coming in unawares and teaching things that they said they got from God, but they didn't get from God. Jeremiah 23, 25 says, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long will this be in the prophets who prophesy lies? The prophet who has a dream, let him tell the dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. I'd rather speak God's word faithfully than tell you I've had a dream. Now, I wanted to turn to the prophecy of Joel and the association with the prophecy that Joel made on the day, to the day of Pentecost. If you know, and I'm saying this because a lot of people will say, well, dreams, Joel said there would be dreams. They would come, young men and an old man, they'd see dreams and visions, and, and, and this is happening, and they go to Joel as authentication for it. The book of Joel focused focuses on prophetic judgment on the southern kingdom of Judah for their sins. And if you're familiar with Joel, Judah was being devastated, literally devastated by a locust invasion that was leading to a severe famine in the land. Job 1.1, 1, 1, hear this, 
you elders, give ear to all the inhabitants of the land. Has anything happened like this in your days or even in the days of your fathers? We read this. Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and tell another generation. I'm going to go quickly here. And he describes what the chewing locusts have left, the swarming locusts have eaten, what the swarming locusts have left, the crawling locusts have eaten, and what the crawling locusts have left, the consuming locusts have eaten. Locusts everywhere. And I remember telling you one time when I was growing up in Pennsylvania, I, I saw a locust invasion in northeastern Pennsylvania. In the northeastern Pennsylvania, the woods are beautiful. You know, there's all kinds of trees. There's more trees, different kind of flowering trees in Pennsylvania than any other state in the country. Maybe New Hampshire, I don't know. Barren. Every single thing was barren. Every leaf was barren. The locust clouds were so thick that my cousin and my brother and me, we'd go out with, with 12 gauge shotguns and we would shoot scatter shot and we'd just shoot all these locusts out of the air. They devoured everything. And that's what, that's what Joel said was happening in his day. So he calls them in verse five. He says, awake you drunkards and weep all you drinkers of wine because of the new wine. I'm going to cut it off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong without number, teeth like a lion, fangs like a fierce lion. He laid waste my, van, my vine, ruined my fig tree, stripped it bare, threw it away. Its branches are made white. They'll take the bark right off. Lament like a virgin, girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering, the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns. The grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Listen, here, here's what we need to hear. Because this was Joe's message. Sin has devastating consequences. Sin in the life of a nation will destroy the nation. It has devastating consequences. And Joel used that judgment of God to bring a greater prophetic warning that would go even out to the last to the end days. And I'm not going to get into that right now. But he was saying this to those the people of that time. Unless you repent, enemy armies will come in to the land just like the locusts did, and they will completely destroy it. The Assyrians would come, the Babylonians would come, and they would literally denude the land, totally destroy it. But Joel gives attention to the day of the Lord. Now that's a that's a phrase in, in scripture that appears a number of times. In, in the Old Testament. It could be referring to a judgment that was taking place, like that locust invasion. That was the day of the Lord. Or a judgment soon to come, the Assyrians and the Babylonian armies. Or it could refer to the final eschatological judgment upon the earth, in which the Lord will call his people to repentance during a time, Job says, of unique astronomical signs in joel 2 10 the earth quakes before them the hembles the heavens tremble the sun and moon grow dark and the stars diminish their brightness great astronomical phenomena would occur and it will come to pass afterwards now notice here's here's the statement that people lay hold of 
It's coming during a time of great astronomical phenomena. And it will come to pass afterwards that I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. And also on my men servants and my maid servants, ordinary people, ordinary Israelites, I will pour out my spirit in those days and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire, pillars of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness. The moon will be turned to blood before the coming and the, the great awesome day of the Lord. Final judgment. Jesus spoke about this. In Matthew 24 and 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Has any of that happened? No, none of it. Thomas Hawkins says, the law of double reference must apply to Joel's main subject. That was to call the people to repentance in view of the impending day of Yahweh, the judgment that would come upon that nation at that time. But ultimately, the book of Joel, here's the double fulfillment, will find its fulfillment in the great tribulation. During the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble, preceding the judgment of the, 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 the nations, the Gentile nations that Joel talks about in chapter 3 and verse 2. And the establishment of a millennial kingdom that Joe talks about in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 21. So Joe was, Joe, Joe was looking far beyond the impending disasters of that day. Thomas I says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Joel 2.28. These are categories of individuals who have been excluded in the past as vehicles of God's prophetic inspiration. But in the future, a time will come when all aspects of Israel's society will be impacted by the Spirit. The context clearly limits the scope of this prophecy to Israel. Such a limitation means the passage is not describing what will happen within Gentile communities. As opposed to a mere trickle at this time in the future, God is going to pour out his spirit upon all Israel. The exact meaning of the phrase relates to a time when God will provide maximum revelation through every echelon of Israel's society. Young men, maidens, ordinary people. Joel describes the activity of God's spirit at work in events surrounding a future coming of Jesus Christ, a tribulation period with great astronomical phenomena, and then the appearance of the sign of the Son of Man. Now here, listen, nothing that Joel prophesied actually happened on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. People miss that. None of it happened. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and to fill the whole house while they were sitting. That did not happen when Joel gave this prophecy. 
Then there appeared to them divided tongues of fire as one sat upon each of them. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Job said nothing about that. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, and I think this is the part that gets confusing, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose. Now remember, the day of Pentecost was, a, was unique. It was the birth of the church. God was doing a new thing in a phenomenal, phenomenal way. And that's why miracles were occurring. While the church was growing, while the canon of Scripture was not yet complete, we had living apostles who were doing true miracles from God, undeniable miracles called the signs of an apostle in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. They were wrought among you. He says, men of Judea and dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These are not drunk as you think, for only it is the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And yet Joel never said anything about those kind of things that were happening. So what's going on? Peter refers to Acts 2 in, in Acts 2 from Joel 2 to point out the, that the Holy Spirit was producing both results. Your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions. This is yet to be fulfilled. It will be fulfilled just as those cosmic signs will be fulfilled when Jesus comes. So there is no warrant here to say that people today are having dreams and visions because this is what Joel prophesied and this is what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's yet future. That part of it is yet future. We need to be careful. The church needs to wake up. The church needs to get off experience and back to the word of God. That's the only thing that we can stand on that is really true that is really a solid foundation for our life. It's too easy, far too easy, to just, to just catch the wave, so to speak, and start thinking, you know, wow, this is happening. This, is, this must be true. Not necessarily so. There is an angel of darkness, right? There is a great deception. And the Bible says that it would be, if it were possible, Though the, even the very elect of God in Israel would be de, would be deceived at the time that the false false messengers are going to come, the false prophets. I'm alarmed, really, at the state of the church today, that we fall for everything. Just because somebody has an experience doesn't mean it's true, right? There are thousands of people who claim that they were abducted by alien beings and taken into UFOs. Thousands of them. Books and books have been written about it. Does that make it true? Just because thousands of people are saying it? No. I can give you many, many more examples. So this is, I'm going to continue this message next week. We'll talk about dreams and visions today. Even the dreams and visions that are occurring in the Muslim world. And, and we'll, we'll look at that. And I'm not going to tell you which way I'm going to go with that. But we'll look at that. Because I do have some scriptural concerns with that. I do have some real theological concerns with some of the things that people are saying. Again, if we're people of the book, let's go by the book, right? Let's go by the word of God. 